I want to start uh, acknowledging that marriage can uh, be very funny as well as very serious. And I have some here, some answers to questions about love and marriage from six to 10-year-olds. This is going to be good. How do you decide who to marry? Alan, age 10, said, you got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like if you like sports, she should, be, she should like that, and like you like sports, and she should keep the chips and dip coming. <laughs> Still with that question, how do you decide who to marry? Kirsten, age 10. No person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all the way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. How can a stranger tell if two people are married? You might have to guess based on they seem to be yelling at the same kids. (laughs) That's my favorite right there. We are in a four-sermon series on marriage. We're calling it Marriage the Maker's Way. Last Sunday, we looked at Ephesians 5, 22 to 23, specifically on the lens of what does God instruct married women, wives. And we saw in that study five things according to God's will expressed in his word. Wives, number one, are to obey their husbands. And we said there are some qualifications, like you never obey a husband who tells you to sin in any way. Number two, wives are to be controlled by the Holy Spirit so that such obeying is possible. Three, such obeying brings a functional order to a marriage. Four, God links a wife's obedience to her husband with her honoring him. Five, wives should make the same connection that God does. In other words, a Christian wife should understand that when she obeys her husband and stands under him and with a dignity and a uh, intellectual strength, then that is part of her overall obedience to the Lord. It's sort of like that trucking line I spoke of that sets a speed limit for its truckers below the government-stated speed limit. When the trucker for that truck line keeps his rig at the corporate speed limit that's under the government speed limit, he also obeys the government speed limit. So that's what God had to say and still has to say to wives And this morning, as I've said, we're going to go to the same passage, and we're going to look to see what does God say to the married men, those of us who are husbands. God has some very clear direction for us in this passage. And essentially, I'll tell you the bottom line, the takeaway, the main point, the big idea of this sermon as to what God says to husbands is this, that the Holy Spirit-controlled husband sacrificially loves The Holy Spirit-controlled husband sacrificially loves. We're going to go through this passage in Ephesians 5, so with your device or with your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. Uh, I invite you to turn there because you can make some notes uh, that you think are pertinent beyond your half sheets, perhaps. So beginning to read at verse 25 of Ephesians 5, where God hones in on what he wants husbands to know and do, Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. The word love, the English word love, your husbands love your wives is 
The highest form of love, the highest variety of love in the New Testament, agape love, you may have heard of that Greek word. This is not eros love, which is uh, sexual love. This is not phileo love, which is uh, friendship love. This is higher than those things. A husband is called to love his wife with agape love. So we need to understand, man, what is agape love? And maybe a way to define what agape love is to tell us what agape love isn't. Well, first of all, agape love is not top 40 radio love. It's not country and Western music love. It's not MTV love. Rather, agape love is God's kind of love, as I've stated. It's not the falling in and falling out of love that we hear about in our culture. Well, I just don't love him anymore. I just don't love her anymore. We're not compatible anymore. It's not that kind of love. Agape love, God's love, the love a husband is to have for his wife, is unconditional love. It's not a only if you measure up love. Not at all. And this agape love is how God loves us as the bride of Christ. How Jesus Christ loves the church is not conditional, it's unconditional. And this agape love, this highest love, this love that husbands are called by God to have for their wives is a giving love. A giving love, it's not a taking love. It's a love that's concerned with a concern rather with giving to the one who is loved. It is not a love concerned with getting from the one who is loved. This kind of agape love, husbands, is a love that meets the need of your, our respective wives. It's not a love that says, I will drain you, wife, of everything you have to give so that I will feel loved. No, that's not agape love. This is what agape love is. Agape love is discerning, figuring out the greatest need in the one who is loved, and then sacrificing to meet that need without concern for the cost or the payback. Can I say that again? Since this is the love that the scriptures call husbands to, we better get it straight, men, so let's listen up. Agape love, the love that God commands for each of us to have for our respective wives, discerns the greatest need in our wife and then sacrificially gives to meet that need without concern for the cost or whether she will ever pay us back. That's agape love. Now I'm going to move through verses 25 to 30 and stop regularly to make some comments. This sermon is for the men, but the ladies, please listen in. The wives, you listen in, okay? But this message is for the married men in particular and the men in general who may be married in the future. Verse 25, again. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus Christ gave himself up for the church on the cross. The greatest need that we have as males or females is that we are sinners separated from God by our sin. And so our greatest need was a sin problem. So God the Father gave the best, his son. 
And God the Son offered himself the best to solve our sin problem. They sacrificed. The Father sacrificed to send the Son to the cross, and the Son sacrificed to go to the cross in humiliation and agony to deal with our sin problem. And so Christ loved the church by dying for us, and the husband says, I would die for my wife. That's great. If an intruder came into my house tonight with a gun and he wanted to harm my wife, I would take a bullet for Beth in a heartbeat to save her life. But you could ask me, that's great, Pastor Rob. You're willing to die for Beth, but are you willing to live for her? Are you willing to live for her, to sacrificially try to meet her legitimate needs without concern of the cost to you or if she'll ever pay me back? That's the question, men. If we're prepared to die for our wives, and I hope that we are, then we ought to be prepared to live for them. Beth's daddy, who went to be with Christ, pastored for almost 60 years. He went to be with Jesus at age 94. The second church he pastored, just between us, although it's being recorded, they paid him under the poverty line. But he never complained. And Beth's mommy never complained either. The kids didn't even know. In fact, when Beth's brother Jim went to Wheaton College to try to apply for financial aid, her daddy took the whole family down to the financial aid office at Wheaton and said, no, don't wear your good clothes. <laughs> and they collected the information from Pastor Wisenhunt, and my father-in-law said, do you think we might qualify for financial aid? And the aid officer said, oh, Pastor Wisenhunt, you're destitute. <laughs> when he walked his family out to the parking lot, he said, we're destitute, praise the Lord. But I tell you that story because there was a lot of sacrifices that were necessary in their home because he was paid so poorly. And so when a chicken would come to the, the evening table for dinner, I picture it's a chicken that wasn't a robust chicken, but just maybe a scrawny little chicken to feed a family of five. Do you know what my father-in-law did? He grabbed the neck and said, I'll take the neck. I love the neck. He didn't love the neck but he gave every other part of the chicken all the other meat to his wife and to his three kids. That's agape love. That's the love that we're called to, men, to love our wives with that kind of love. Verses 26 to 27. I'll get the context, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave him up himself up for her, that why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Pastor in training, Craig Knowles, started this service by pointing out we should worship today with clean hands and pure heart. He's absolutely scripturally right. Point I'd like us to see here, merry men, is that Christ had very clear purposes 
for sacrificing in the way that he did to have sinners born again, adopted into God's family, and to coagulate, to come together, to be called out of the world, to be the church, the ecclesia, the called apart ones. That's us. Jesus Christ had very defined purposes for going to the cross, and God the Father had very defined purposes that he would send his son to the cross. And here is what the text says in the verses I have just read are those purposes. All the her, feminine pronouns, are referring to the church because we're the bride of Christ, and Jesus Christ is our bridegroom. The clear purposes of the Godhead in sacrificing which Jesus made for the church to sanctify her, to set the church apart for God's possession and use, to cleanse her of our sins, to give her glory. God's glory to be imparted to us when we transact this week in business, when we raise our children, when we deal with each other as married people, as we're employees. We've been given God's glory so that we would reflect God's glory wherever we go. Purposes that God the Father and God the Son had for Jesus Christ sacrificing us to sanctify her, to cleanse her, to give her glory, to make her holy, set apart, distinct from a world that cheerfully leaves Jesus Christ completely out. Do you notice how that's increasing? Pastors being arrested in the U.S., people being hauled away who are street preaching or praying in public. Christian universities backing off what used to be standard fare in their chapels and their curriculum. Jesus Christ sacrificed to purchase us with his precious blood to sanctify the church, to cleanse the church, to give the church his glory, to make the church holy, and to make the church blameless ultimately. That ultimately, individually, we'll stand before Jesus and Because of Christ, we will be judged blameless. (laughs) I married uh, Beth 36 years ago, honey. Seems like yesterday. 36 years ago, we got married in Michigan. And for 36 plus years, I have been on a building project. A building project. I am trying to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and I am trying to encourage my wife to cooperate with the Holy Spirit so that both of us come to look and to live more like Jesus Christ. In Quebec, in Canada, in the winter, they have a very famous winter carnival. If you ever get to go to the Quebec winter carnival, I strongly encourage you to do so. One of the exhibits at the Quebec Winter Carnival is they have these massive blocks of ice. They're like cubes, but they're huge, huge. And they bring in ice sculptors. And do you know how they sculpt the ice? With chainsaws to begin with. They chainsaw away from the block of ice what they want to need to chop away to make whatever they're making. One such sculptor made an eagle in flight out of a block of ice, an eagle, magnificent. Someone said to the ice sculptor, how in the world do you do that? He says, simple. You just hack away everything that doesn't look like an eagle. The Holy Spirit 
is hacking away from each of us who are Christians everything that doesn't look like Jesus. It's a process. They start with chainsaws, and as they work their way down to the finer detail of the sculpture, they use knives and different things to do the fine work, and that's like the Holy Spirit too. And so my building project for 36 plus years now has to be that I would be loving to Beth, giving to Beth, leading of Beth, praying for Beth and with Beth, building a sanctified and a cleansed and a glorious and a holy and a blameless Beth Elliott. That's my building project. (laughs) I'm not just doing that for me, though. I am mostly doing that for the Savior. And it's only right because, after all, he, the Savior, gave her to me. He gave my precious Beth to me as his good, acceptable, and perfect gift in 1983. And I remain so grateful that he did. Again, 25, 27. Husbands, agape your wives, just as Christ also agape the church, and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, excuse me, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Now, I was raised in a family that was very conscientious and very responsible. And I'm the firstborn child of this responsible family, so I'm even perhaps more responsible than my sisters. I don't know. But nonetheless, I was raised in a family that taught me the obligation of leaving something better than I find it. That applied when I was a babysitter as a young guy with the family that I was babysitting's dishes. I knew that when I came to babysit at the Joneses, if the Joneses left their dirty dishes in the sink, that I would wash their dishes so that when they came in from their evening, the dishes were washed. I left their kitchen better than I found it. Or it applied to tools. If I had occasion to borrow a tool, then I knew that I should return the tool better than I found it. If I was given a push lawnmower that was a quarter full of gas, I always returned it full of gas. I was trained to leave things better than I found them. To down to picnic tables in public parks. I can remember we would come to a picnic table that was gross, there was mustard and ketchup and whatever else left by the previous family, and my mom would pull out a cloth, and we would clean the picnic table off to eat, and then we would clean the picnic table off to leave. I was in a family that taught me to leave things better than I found them. And I was taught the importance and the politeness and the manners and the obligation of leaving things better than I found them. I was taught that if you don't leave something better than you found it, you're rude and selfish. Now, husbands, please listen carefully. The most important place to leave something better than you found it is in your marriage. Follow with me, guys. This is super important. Because the Lord Jesus planned it for me to marry Beth, he expects me to one day leave her off with him better than I found her as a single woman back in 1982. 
That's my job. And that's your job if you're married. That's my responsibility, and that's your responsibility, husband. That's my privilege, and that's your privilege if you're married. That's my pleasure, and that's your pleasure if you're a husband. That's my ministry, and it's also your ministry if you're married. That's my joy, and it's also your joy. It should be if you're married. I was struck. I've told you before, my father and grandfather before him were funeral directors. I was struck. The day that my daddy came home from work and he said, I saw something I've never seen before at a funeral, son. I said, what's that? He said the deceased wife was buried in her bridal gown. The husband dressed his deceased wife in her wedding dress for the casket. In a sense, he was saying to the Lord Jesus, she wore this dress when you gave her to me, and now she wears this dress when I give her back to you. Guys, isn't it so very kind of the Lord to spell out for us what he requires of us as husbands? He's not fuzzy. He's not vague. He doesn't dance around the mulberry bush. He just makes it clear sacrificially love your wife. Gary Thomas, some of you know, is an author, a great Christian author in the area of marriage. And Gary Thomas points out in one of his books that it puts a whole new spin on your marriage if you remember that God the Father is your father-in-law. He is. God the Father is your father-in-law, husband. And so we husbands are to be builders. We are to be builders of our wives. We're not to tear them down, hurt them, belittle them, take them for granted. We are to build our wives up into Christ. And we're supposed to build them each day to the best of our abilities to be more like Jesus. And guess what, guys? That's only possible if we're becoming more like Jesus every day, right? We do this building of our respective wives up to the full stature of Jesus Christ by sacrificially giving to meet our wives' needs. That's the only way it happens. This building of your wife to be more like Jesus requires you to roll up your sleeves, to make personal sacrifices, and to work hard at getting your hands dirty, as it were, to build your wife up. Again, agape love is to figure out the deepest need in the one you love and then to sacrifice to meet that need without concern for the cost to you or if you'll ever get paid back. That's the love to which we are called as husbands. I've told this story before, but it is so potent, even to me, all these years later. There was a couple in our first church in their mid-30s they adopted a boy, and there was uh, Chris, Janine, and Matthew. Lovely little family. Uh, Chris was an athlete. He was a salesman. He was outgoing, and Janine was an athlete, and she was so nurturing of their adopted son and her husband, and it was just a great family. Just, you might almost say, like, Barbie and Ken. I mean, they were just and strong Christians. 
Chris would go in the bar to do business because the client wanted him to go in the bar and he'd always have a Coca-Cola and the, and the client would say, why don't you drink a beer? What's the matter with you? Aren't you a man? And Chris would say, I don't, it's not that I don't, uh, not just that I don't want a beer, I don't need a beer. It appears that you need a beer. Anyway, on a staycation, the Exel family went to a large mall in Canada, and they walked around, did some shopping, did some window shopping, ate in the food court, and it was the end of the day. And they wound up way at the other end of the mall, and uh, their car was parked way at the other end of this huge mall. So Chris said to Janine, you guys just wait here, rest. I'll go get the car, I'll bring it around, and you won't have to walk all the way back to the car. So he, he did that. He went back to the car, and uh, he choked to death. He took a hard candy, they figured out later, from a compartment in the vehicle, a hard candy, took off the cellophane wrapper, but he failed to take off the second cellophane wrapper that's sort of like a belt around some hard candies, and the wrapper lodged in his windpipe, and he choked to death. 38, 34 years old. Had his funeral. The church was absolutely packed. Standing room only. The cemetery was at adjacent to the, the church building, so we left the church building, carried his casket to his grave, we uh, committed his earthly house to its final resting place, and we were walking away from the grave, Beth and I were, along with the widow, Janine. And to this day, I have no idea what, why I said what I said, probably because Beth was right with me, but I've never said this before, and I've never said this since. With, with Beth being present, I said, Janine, you look lovely today. Never said that to a widow before or since. Janine said, oh, thank you. Chris picked this dress. I said, wow. So it's really appropriate that you would wear it today. She goes, Chris picked all my dresses. I hate shopping. I'm not a typical woman, I guess. I hate shopping. So when Chris figured that out, he said, I'll shop for you. And he did. Every clothing that I wear, I'm happy that he picked because I hate shopping. I said, wow, you ever pick the wrong stuff? Yeah. I just told him I didn't care for the cut or the color or whatever it was, and he would take it back and get what I preferred. I said, wow, to myself. I said, this man named Chris Exel had his PhD in Janine. His PhD. I, I know Beth, and I love Beth, but I'm not so sure I could pick everything that she would like off the rack. But Chris did. Because he made it his business to meet Janine's need. Her need was to have clothes that suited her and that she enjoyed, but she hated shopping. So he says, I'll shop. Agape love. Agape love. So Mary, Mary, guys, I want you to do something on your bulletin or on your half sheet if you have a pen. Right now, I have given you an assignment. I want you right now to write down what you think are your, your particular wife's two to three top needs right now. As of right now, I want you to put to paper what you think is your wife, what her two to three top needs are. You can do that while I'm preaching. You, you can multitask. Now, 
That's an in-sanctuary assignment. Now here's a homework assignment based on what you've gathered. Before you go to bed tonight, husbands, I want you to tell your wife, show your wife the two to three needs that you wrote down when I was preaching that you think are top three, two, two or three needs. I want you to show her. And then I want you to listen if you're right or not before you go to bed. Now, ladies, I've given husbands this assignment for 30-plus years, and some of your husbands, <laughs> well, I know I can speak for myself. Sometimes I'm pretty clued out. And there are some husbands, when I just gave that assignment, they go, I have no idea. <laughs> Ladies, if your husband comes to you with sincerity and says, I want to do what the pastor challenged the husbands to do, and I really don't know what any, even one of your main needs are right now, would you please tell me? Ladies, please don't discount that as being somehow inferior. If he's asking you to tell him what your two to three top needs are, just be glad he's asking. Oh, you should have known, you know. <laughs> Maybe he should have, yeah. But he didn't. But he didn't blow off the assignment. He said, please tell me your two to three top needs. I want to know. Please forgive me for not knowing. Before bedtime, I want you to take that up. Husband, you study your wife. It's a long course. It's a course that lasts until one of you dies. Earn your PhD in your wife. Shoot to become a doctor, in my case, a doctor of Beth. And so we are called as husbands to sacrifice. In other words, to be a husband should be to be defined as one who sacrifices. Now, last message on wives. Remember, I talked about how ambulance sirens call vehicles to pull over. Why? Because a life is in the balance in the ambulance, and the ambulance can't get by if the traffic doesn't pull over. And the, then the ambulance, when the traffic pulls over, can get the person in the, to the hospital, the doctors. And we likened pulling over for an ambulance to wives voluntarily standing under, obeying their husbands. Well, I have a metaphor for us guys. At the PMH hospital and doctor's hospital, there are blood banks. You know about it. Alan Simonette, our office administrator, may send out a mass e email that uh, John Doe desperately needs blood. Please donate in his name at the blood bank. So if we do that, we go in and say, hey, I'm here to donate blood, and I'm donating it to the account of John Doe. Or you can go into the blood bank if you don't have a particular patient you're donating for. You just want to generally help someone who needs blood. That's a good thing to do, too. But the only way someone donates blood is to discern there's a need for blood. And then to pull their car over, to park it, and to walk into PMH or to walk into doctors to give blood. That's how it works. That sacrifice requires time, energy, Paying for parking, pain to some measure, and giving blood. It's a sacrifice. Men, every time you drive by one of our two hospitals, I want you to think there's a blood bank in that hospital. 
And it's only got blood in it if people sacrifice to give blood. And people will only sacrifice to give blood if they believe people need blood. May the hospitals remind us married guys that God calls us to sacrifice for our respective wives. And so what we got going on here is the women are paying attention to the ambulances and the men are paying attention to the blood banks. Now, we're getting there. Last week, the Holy Spirit wife willingly obeys, that is, she respects her husband. Today, the Holy Spirit-controlled husband sacrificially gives. He loves his wife. Next Sunday, if God spares life, the message will be the game plan. We'll look at the specific relationship and interaction between husbands and wives. But before I close off this message, please listen. I have a warning. I have a warning for every married person in the sound of my voice. There are unprincipled adulterers all around you every day. Unprincipled adulterers. Husband, I'll just say it plain. If you won't cherish your wife, then some other man will be willing to. And wife, if you won't respect your husband, there'll be some other woman who will. There are many unprincipled, would-be adulterers lurking all around each of our lives every day. Some of them are overt, the flirtatious, the suggestive. And others of these scoundrels are covert. It's hidden what their motive is at first. And so I move from a warning to a human command as your pastor. A a fair proof, your marriage. Nobody else will. A fair proof, your marriage. You say, Pastor, is that possible? Yeah, it's possible. A fair proof, your marriage. Husband, you a fair proof your marriage by cherishing your wife. Make your wife convinced that next to Jesus Christ, she is the most cherished person in your world. That will affair-proof your marriage. And to the wives, you too can affair-proof your marriage. Respect your husbands. Make your particular husband certain that next to Jesus Christ, he's the most respected person in your life. Remember, a thousand women lined across our parking lot, all with completely unique DNA. But when you boil it all down, when you ask them long enough, they share one fundamental, basic need, to be cherished. Take a 1,000 men, line them across this parking lot, unique DNA, 
you ask them, if you push them far enough and ask enough questions, their one fundamental basic ground need is respect. They need to be respected. So doesn't it make sense? If you fail to cherish your wife and some unprincipled adulterer starts to cherish your wife, there's a danger of infidelity. And doesn't it make sense if you fail to respect your husband that there's going to be possibly some unprincipled, would-be adulterer who would be happy to respect your husband, which leads to infidelity? And so I've got another homework assignment. Remember, you were to write down your wife's two to three top needs in the service, if not after the service, and then to talk about your, what you think are your particular wife's top, two to three top needs before you go to bed tonight. And here's another assignment, husbands, before we go to bed. I want you to look your wife in the eyes and with a kind and loving tone I want you to ask her, honey, do you feel cherished by me? And listen. That is not the time to defend yourself. That is not the time to argue. That is not the time to shut her down. That's the time to find out information. Honey, do you feel cherished by me? If we will do that, if we will talk about it after we've done that, if we will be teachable, if we will be willing to change, your marriage can go to a whole new level. Even a good marriage can go to a whole new level. Marriage, the maker's way. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body, and for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. For the mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Lord, we know that marriage is the only thing you've left on earth to be a miniature object lesson of your son's relationship with the church. And because that's so, marriage has always been under intense attack by Satan. And that attack has intensified over recent months.
We pray, Lord, that we would sacrifice to meet the needs of our wives without concern for the cost or the payback, we who are husbands. And we pray that the wives would stand under, submit, obey their godly husbands. Lord, be glorified in our marriages and be glorified in this church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.